This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. On this episode, we talk with Frank Camaro, director at Frank and author of the book The Shape of Design. Frank talks about how he found design by using it as a foothold to have deeper relationship with the things he really enjoyed, how designers have the opportunity to teach a commitment and expectation of craft and quality to fellow disciplines, about the value and experience outside of efficiency, and how work and experiences are cyclical in nature. Frank Camaro, thank you for joining us on This is Designed to School today. Uh, we're really excited to have you in this conversation in the room together. Virtual yeah, thank room. You. Virtual room. Yeah, we're yeah. staying safe. But thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, we wanted to start off the conversation by learning a little bit about your um, journey in design. So how you found design and how you kind of got to where you are today. And maybe we can take a wandering path uh, through that. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm 36 years old, and I think that my way into design probably matches a lot of people around my age, mm-hmm. just because um, the world was like a certain way in the late 90s and the early aughts. So uh, I got into design because I got, my family got a, a computer in like 1994, you know, and I, there were like, three things that I loved when I was a kid and it was drawing and that computer and music. Mm-hmm. And as I got older, I like, you know, spent a lot of time on that computer. And I remember like the excitement of upgrading to windows 95 and just kind of like that optimism about what a computer could do in the late nineties. And eventually I was like, what if I tried drawing on this thing? I was just looking at people that were going online with a dial-up modem looking at people who were like painting in tools like Photoshop and things like that. While that was happening, uh, as I got a little older through high school and things like that, I had friends in bands and I loved music, but I had like no musical talent of my own. So it was just kind of like going through the motions of making album art for friends who are recording um, or I don't know, making like stupid websites where I would transcribe Radiohead lyrics because I just thought the world needed another GeoCities website with like OK Computer lyrics on it. I was just going to ask if it was OK Computer. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. OK Computer. Uh, Kid A turns 20 this year. So I'm like having a little bit of a, a crisis about that. Um, but, you know, it was it was just like a lot of that kind of thing where it was really using design as like a, a way to have a foothold and to have a relationship with the things that I really enjoyed and the kind of relationship that was maybe a little bit deeper or at least a little more active than just kind of being an appreciator of it or a listener, things like that. Um, So that's really like how I got started. The other thing that I like really loved growing up was like kind of art history sort of things. And I loved Indiana Jones movies. Uh, when I was a kid, I was just kind of like obsessed with him for some reason. And that made me think that archaeology is awesome. So this is like another very specific thing, I think, for like uh, dudes who are, you know, 35, 36, 
uh, and seeing those movies, it just like made a big impression about like what's cool. And I had it in my head where it's like, you know, what's also cool and interesting archeology span and like anthropology. So when I finished high school, I went to state university. Uh, it was Southwest Missouri State at that point. And later on uh, was sort of upgraded and renamed to Missouri State, which is what it's called now. And my first semester, I was like 50-50 wanting to either major in anthropology or archaeology or design. I think I took my first sociology course and I was like, damn, this is a lot of reading and it's really hard. And I was taking these art courses and they also kicked my butt because I had a pretty pathetic work ethic uh, that needed to be corrected. But I was like, I think that this is like where I actually want to go. It's like, I kind of don't want to be, um, you know, in a bunch of musty old books all day. It's like it, over here, it's more of a social setting. It's like, we have a studio environment. And I was like, this is, this is actually a thing that I really love. So you wanted the adventure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Indiana Jones adventure. Yeah. I, th I think so. But, you know, as I get older, I sort of realize that, um, you know, I still really love that old school 90s history channel stuff where it's like we're talking about an old Egyptian civilization and, you know, we have a shot of the sun rising over the pyramids and then there's like a symbol crash for drama, you know, like those cheesy things that were on cable in the 90s. I still really, really love all of that stuff. And I think what's happening right now is I'm just sort of getting that impulse or that interest scratched through things like YouTube and other things. That's just sort of like a course of uh, self-education and personal interest and not necessarily like a, like a professional uh, path that needs to get integrated into my design practice at all. So you talked a little bit about um, class kicked your butt because you were like not very motivated to do things, but yeah. from the outside following your work over the past years, it seems like you have no lack of motivation <laughs> to <laughs> self-initiate to do things and running your own studio and things like that. So what was that all about and how did that shift for you? There's so much that's out of your control whenever you're doing design work. And um, I think that now in my career, I'm, I'm working with a lot of software companies. I'm sort of looking at, you know, these software developers, um, looking at designers and the roles that they have, uh, looking at management and um, product people. And I sort of feel like the interesting thing about those teams is that each one of them has a specialty that they can teach everybody else in the organization about. And I really feel like one of the opportunities for designers is that that commitment to craft or that expectation of quality. That's something that you can actually teach other people about having that commitment to quality because they sort of ambiently maybe understand that when it comes to consuming things, but it's something that you need to model after whenever it comes to making things. I think. And there's other, like, that's not a specific thing about designers. Obviously, if you were to talk to um, somebody who does programming, there's a whole culture around craft and code and elegance and code. So it's not just specific to designers, but in terms of like what can be felt and what can be intuited by people who don't do that kind of work, I think that that's kind of one of the main things that designers have to offer to the rest of the places where they work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, how did you then carry that change in motivation with you after you graduated from design school? Uh, I actually was freelancing a little bit before I graduated. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't, it was like ticky tack stuff. 
Um, not, not really more than beer money, but not necessarily enough to like go off and pay rent, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, when I finished school there, actually, I want to, I want to make it a point to say this. There was like an exit scholarship that the design program had put together. It was a couple grand, um, which frankly was a lot more money in 2006. But mm -hmm. the intention of that money was, it was like a, it was like an attaboy or an girl. You know, it's like a little pat on the back and it's like, here's some financial cushion as you maybe take a couple months to go look for work. Or if you need to relocate for a job, like here's some money that you can tap into to go do that. And I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I didn't know if I wanted to take a job in-house because that was kind of interesting because as an undergrad, I was working in-house for the university in their design department doing uh, printed materials. I was also just sort of looking at design studios and flipping through design magazines and just being impressed by studios in, you know, places around the Midwest and like Madison and Chicago and then looking at the Pacific Northwest and, you know, all of the sort of classic design activity that was happening in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of like paralyzed myself with, option, uh, with options. I just didn't know what to do. And I was like, well, I have this little bit of money. I live in a house with like 700 guys. So my rent is seven and a half dollars because you know it was it was Missouri at the time. And I was like, well, why don't we just like take a little bit of time and like not make a choice right now? It's like we can keep this beer money freelance work that I've been doing, maybe tie that up with the scholarship and then try to do a little bit more work now that I have a little bit more time and sort of see how I feel, I don't know, at the end of the summer or something like that. And uh yeah, like six or seven months later, it was just kind of like, well, there's, you know, there's some momentum to this, or at least enough momentum for me to be like, this is interesting and maybe worth doing for a little while longer. And then, you know, like 20 years later, it's like, hey guys, how's it going? We're on a podcast. <laughs> Well, I mean, you haven't been doing only freelance in those 20 years, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely true. But, you know, one of the things that life teaches you over and over is just one thing leads to another. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. As well as things are in cycles. Yeah, definitely. There's a season for, for everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely feel that uh, these days where um, I feel like, didn't I do this in 2000? Or what, wasn't this the same sort of issue that we had before? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, I guess I've been designing professionally for 20 years now because I started doing stuff at like 16, designing for money. If that qualifies as professional, I've been doing it for 20 years. And um, I guess one of the things that I've just really come to realize is that I don't actually feel like I have 20 years of experience. It's just sort of five years of experience repeated four times. It mm -hmm. is sort of cyclical. You're a little wiser I hope for each and every lap, but you know, like we have the same concerns and the same, make the same mistakes and reutilize the same strategies um, pretty frequently. I think also our interest in doing the work in certain ways or doing certain kinds of work waxes and wanes and is pretty cyclical as well. So for me, there's periods where it's like, I just want to write. It's like, I don't even care about how things look right now. It's like, I just want to bash out a couple paragraphs in Courier and text edit, you know? 
that's all I want to do. And it's like the best thing that I could be doing um, with my sort of creative uh, energy right now. And then there's other times where it's like, get me the hell away from words. Like I want to throw a, a bed sheet over my bookshelf because I don't want to look at a single book. And it's like, just give me old photographs of dudes on farms or just like plants from the 1890s because I don't want to be close to a word or a piece of technology or anything like that right now. It's like, I just need some different stimulation uh, or I need to like be creative and have a different kind of content in, in yeah. front of me. I guess, you know, design being one activity you've, I mean, you've obviously operated within many other hats other than a designer then. Yeah. Um, specifically in writing seems to be mm -hmm. an activity that you enjoy a lot. How, what was that process of um, getting into writing and feeling like there was enough there that you wanted to formulate, um, you know, your thoughts into something as concise as, you know, a, a self-published book? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think by listening to this podcast, it's pretty clear that I'm full of words. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just like in there. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of other designers that you can meet and you could sort of say like, oh, this person in front of me, they're, they're just like full of images, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've seen that in designers and people who make films. And um, there are people who just have a bank of images in their mind, you know? For me, it's words. And the way that I got started writing was I was teaching at the time. I was doing um, adjunct courses, teaching stuff like uh, pretty broad range in terms of uh, distance to graduation. So first year students versus last year students. Mm -hmm. I, one semester I like had that full gamut. And it was really interesting because you would step into a classroom and um, my teaching style has always been really discussion based you know, it's critique and discussion based. And um, I just kind of like started noticing all of these patterns and the questions and the concerns and the needs of the students um, across that range of uh, experience, you know, because there's, there is a big uh, jump in experience between a first year student and a last year student. So what I started to do was to try to answer their really good questions. And I would have like a, like a, hour and a half, two hour gap in between classes where I would go to a coffee shop a couple blocks away, sit down and have lunch and pop out my laptop and actually just try to like type up three or four paragraphs with like, what was the question? What was my response or reaction to it? And over the course of teaching a few times a week, it was like, cool, I'm just kind of like building um, like a repository of text here. And I started publishing that. And I think it kind of gets you into this flywheel effect mm -hmm. where you start sharing ideas, you start doing your best to, to capture them and to articulate what your actual idea is or, or um, answer, I guess, is the right, the right way to put it to a student's question or to this sort of more ambient question about the work. And then you share it. And the internet was a little different back then, you know, it wasn't quite so dominated by social media, but you know, whenever you say stuff, people say things back, you know, people want to talk. Um, and if they find something that captures maybe something that they've already known or already felt, but possibly in an ambient way, they're even more inclined to share it. And 
I think one of the things that happened in that classroom setting was we were just talking about a lot of different topics where there weren't really answers to the questions. There was just like attitudes or different ways of thinking about it that you could put on and take off. And that's always fun stuff to talk about. And that's, you know, maybe one of the things that gets discussed over hours and hours and hours on a podcast like this, you know, it's partially informed, but it's also partially amusing and people have different attitudes towards things because they're in a different season or they have their own perspectives. So you can share those thoughts and have somebody feel differently or the same. And in either case, it's like, well, that's interesting. And that's really how I got to writing. And it started with really small things that were maybe like three to 400 words, you know, just like one simple thing that I'm trying to explain the best that I can. And then it sort of like grew in, in complexity. And one thing that was really, really helpful was around the same time I started to be invited to, to give talks at conferences and things like that. And I think one of the things that helped me get over a certain hurdle as far as length was making a slide deck. It's like giving a designer the possibility to like make a sequence of text and images is just kind of like really catering to their strengths. Mm -hmm. you know? It's Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Like, and still there's people that hate decks because there's so many bad slide decks out there, but I love them just because it, for me, it's like the only book that you can have on your computer that's satisfying. You know, it's a sequence of text and images and um, I think that that was another thing that just sort of helped me sort of slowly wade out into deeper, more complex ideas or focus a little bit more on the sequence of when I was introducing new information or um, when to build up a line of thought and then drop it and then go somewhere completely different and then return back to the initial line of thought and focus a little bit more on sequencing and structure about how you sort of tell the story of whatever your idea is. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you talk about slide decks being such a unique medium, especially for designers. Um, you came out with a talk right before I was going into grad school um, from a do conference that I used to back in the day, like watch over and over. That was very impactful. Mm. And it was all about doing things the long, hard, stupid way. <laughs> yeah. And that one slides. And there was no slides. Yeah. There was no slides. Yeah. Yeah. I did that twice. Um, over the course of those few years when I was doing a lot of talks. One was at the do lectures just because uh, it was in a tent in the middle of a field. And granted, like they had a setup with a projector where you could show slides if you wanted to. But you know, everybody was sort of camping out because it was like a two or three day conference. Mm -hmm. And I just thought this felt a little bit against the spirit of it. So like, I only have to talk for 15 minutes. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just try to do this with like maybe one note card with five bullet points on it and uh, see how that goes. You know, mm -hmm. if it goes terribly, it's like our internet access out here isn't too great. So nobody's going to hop on Twitter and be like, Oh, this guy freaking sucks. This is a good place to try to do a trial run of this. Yeah. And uh, the second time that I did it, it was at the national AIGA conference a few years ago. So uh, they were doing like a young designers symposium for students and, you know, people one, two, three years out of, out of university. And I just thought like, you know, like they're gonna be doing the main conference here as well. So like, let's just kind of have like some story time. So no slides there. It was just like, let's just, you know, talk for 30 minutes and I've got a couple ideas that I wanna share. So um, here's that. That was an interesting exercise. 
um, and to have those two go pretty well, I think gave me some good confidence. I missed my pictures, mm-hmm. you know, I really missed my pictures, but I didn't necessarily miss like the, the slides with text on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my relationship to the decks might, might've changed a little bit after that, where I was like more willing to have the thing that was maybe up on the screen and in the deck, not run completely in parallel with what I was saying, you know, to like have that actually act as like a support to say something like in a long form verbally, but just have that idea summarized in one big word behind me on a projector was somehow more interesting to Mm -hmm. me or, you know, just to like kind of have like a look at me slide in the middle of a deck where there's just nothing on it. And it's like, okay, this is the time where I'm going to say stuff and I don't want you looking at the screen. So it's just going to be blacked out. Um, Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. I'm surprised you remember that. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, that, that talk, I mean, especially going like at that period, going into grad school, it made me rethink the way I did that whole experience. And sometimes it, I, I feel like it, you know, I come back to that saying over and over again. Um, yeah, now. we should, I should probably, I should probably maybe put some flesh on those bones. So yeah, uh, that talk was about doing things the long, hard, stupid way. Yeah. That is a phrase that the chef David Chang said on an episode of the HBO show Treme. There's a uh, sous chef looking for a job and it was the, the key line was, we do things here the long, hard, stupid way. And for me, I saw that in the middle of a year where I was like trying to write a book. I had never written anything of that length before. Right in the middle of it, I was asked to speak at this conference and I was like, actually, this is kind of something that I want to talk about. And the key thing there was just to sort of say that there's value um, in experience outside of efficiency. Mm -hmm. You know, very often the extra reps that you're going to be doing on that work by doing it the long, hard, stupid way, that's the place where all the information that you need is going to be hidden. Mm Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of something else that I've heard you say, which is uh, to uh, be a believer of good trouble, which is to kind of question the status quo and uh, think about how else to do things. And I think that those two types of phrases, doing things a long, hard, stupid way, and a little bit of good trouble uh, are a fascinating um, thesis or a, a fascinating life a motto to live by. I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever taken those types of uh, practices or, or mantras to the classroom with you. Yeah, so that good trouble comment, that phrasing comes from John Lewis, civil rights icon. So that phrase comes from that context. And I think that that's really important. So when John Lewis was talking about good trouble, what he's really talking about is uh, the fight for racial justice here in the United States, right? And that is his efforts around the Voting Rights Act and everything else that he did uh, with his civic engagement. So that's really important. And I find it like really inspiring because for me, it's about, there's these different definitions about like what constitutes value, right? And the summary of the long, hard, stupid way is just kind of like, well, money and I disagree a lot about what's valuable. You know, and I think that that's true of like anybody that I would be interested in having a prolonged conversation with. And then I think typically when I talk about good trouble, it's in the context of work culture, right? Not only in terms of compensation, 
but I think also just generally with how, especially Americans, how their attitude towards work. How much do you identify with like what your economic role is and like how fused to your sense of self is that? And that's a, that's a sickness that I think is especially apt to happen to people like designers, you know? Who knows, I'm not a specialist on this. Maybe a bunch of healthy individuals will constitute a healthier work culture. I'm not exactly sure. But back to your question about school, I think really what we're talking about is uh, criticism, right? Um, and for me, I think an academic context is really interesting because that is a place where you can have a tremendous amount of force in criticizing um, and questioning work culture and commerce itself. So a design education and formulating aspects of a design education that just have absolutely nothing to do with the marketplace is interesting. On one hand, it's a little responsible because I think that there is an understanding that design is a trade. Um, and because we do have a sick work culture here in America, you're kind of like maybe not properly equipping them to be successful after if you only teach them those aspects that criticize uh, the marketplace and commerce. But there's room to create some space in there to let a little bit of uh, that mental flexibility that I was talking about earlier where you can take off that hat that fuses yourself with the role of a designer who exists in a commercial context and maybe change that out with a different hat of a designer who is operating in a way that just really doesn't have very much to do with commerce. Um, that's really interesting. And then maybe a third mode where there's just no hat on your head at all and you're like properly like defused from that sense of identity with what of you as a designer. It's like, no, I'm just kind of like over here doing my own thing and not necessarily getting upset whenever I walk by a sign with bad kerning. How do you, how do you balance that um, sense of identity within yourself? I mean, especially somebody who's spent, you know, most of their 20 years of experience working for themselves in one yeah. capacity or another, like, how do you strike that balance? I mean, one of my fears of going freelance has always been that I would never stop working. Yeah. <laughs> You know? Yeah, so I've been, I've been pretty lucky to be able to have my reputation lead to rates where there's enough slack in the line to either take a normal amount of time off mm -hmm. or to actually feel like I have enough clout to have boundaries. You mm -hmm. know, everybody needs to have and maintain boundaries with their work. But I understand that sort of enforcing those boundaries is a lot easier for some people than other people. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like, I'm a white dude showing up um, with a lot of reputation behind my name. And the older I get, the more like the amount of experience I have equals the actual age of some of the people that I'm working with. And for the most part, I'm able to like push back a little bit um, or educate people about what my boundaries are, but maybe like what more reasonable expectations would be. That's aspect number one. I think a second aspect is really important thing that you only get to see over time, which is that, um, this might be a little risky to say, but I think it's mostly true. Uh, projects don't succeed because of me and they don't fail because of me. You know, I have like this sphere of influence about coming to the work with the correct attitude and like putting in the reps and 
thinking as clearly as I can and communicating uh, my perspective on how things should be. But I think any designer who's done enough work and handed it off to a client understands that you doing good work is only part of the equation about what makes that work actually successful. You know, not every job, most design jobs are not as clean as uh, an illustration job, you know, where you send over the JPEG and then they put it inside of the page layout and then it shows up in the newspaper or the magazine or the website a few days later. Hmm. Granted, you know, there's a lot of ways that that could go sideways too. Um, and I have some stories about that. But for the most part, um, things don't fail because of me. Things don't necessarily succeed because of me either. Um, everything is just kind of being dropped off into a context and design work always requires maintenance. You know, it has to be tended. And when you hand it off to somebody, if they're not properly equipped to do that maintenance or that tending, it's just not necessarily really gonna go well. Um, and, you know, maybe that's okay. You know, maybe the thing that you made wasn't necessarily exactly what they needed and it's good for it to go sideways because that's gonna like help them understand what they actually do need. Um, but I think that that's one way to like actually have a little bit of distance between you and the work is to watch things that you thought were terrible go well, to watch things that you thought went splendidly go absolutely sideways and terribly. And then to have that happen enough times and just kind of be like, well, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who knows? It's like, that, it's like being nearsighted. It's like the things yeah. that I can see and the things that I can control are just like this little area. It's just arms reach around me. And the bigger projects you work on, the more people that are involved and the more time and expectations are placed upon that work, the more you start to realize that, um, you know, things aren't going to fail because you didn't pick the perfect font, you know? Um, it matters that you pick a really great one, but it's, it's, you know, nobody's, the ship's not going to sink because of it. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, design students. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry about that. I mean, I, I love looking at fonts and like, that's a huge source of like satisfaction for me. And, um, I don't, I don't want to like poo poo on it and, and say that it doesn't matter because it does matter. Um, in terms of doing good work and having personal satisfaction, but it's only part of the equation if we're talking about like what makes for successful design work. Yeah. You know? But I think, you know, there, there was something that you had just said, which is putting in the reps. And I think that that is equally important. And sometimes putting in the reps is looking at fonts, you know, for right. hours upon hours. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's about, you know, the, the context of it, the, the way that it's designed, layout, sketch, uh, communicated with the client and, and so forth. So right. I, I think that you're, you're definitely right on in, in that uh, the context there. And you can think about it kind of horizontally instead of vertically, right? Because all of the stuff that you're talking about, like picking the right visual materials and um, sort of having a clear understanding about what the client actually wants and needs and the ways that they're expressing it, um, communicating your particular design approach to them in a clear way that's understandable and builds off of previous conversations that you've had with them. Um, simply asking them what they don't like so you don't do it, right? Like those kinds of things. And then putting in the required amount of time to make you know, really good design choices in terms of type and color and, and all of those other things. It's like, if you think about that horizontally across all of these different verticals of activity that is a part of making design for other people, you can kind of look at it. It's like, okay, this is like the foundations of these different areas. And yeah. those simple things, they're worth doing well because they happen every day. 
I find it interesting that uh, of the three of us here, um, Chad, I think you're the only one that's still teaching now at this point, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we've each had this experience of uh, being uh, on one side of the lectern or another and um, have come away with a different perspective of it and, and so forth. I'm wondering if this is a question just for Frank or maybe it's for, for all three of us, but what is it that is missing in design education that we can still bring or that we can still contribute? So whether that is on this side of the, of the lectern or on your side of the lectern, uh, Chad, of being an educator still or being out there helping young designers finding their way in the world? Mm. So the thing that I've been saying for the last few years, I, at this point, I think that I, I taught for, uh, in an adjunct role, you know, like two, maybe three courses every semester. Uh, it's like, I really loved teaching and I really hated school. It's like the bureaucratic aspect <laughs> of it yep. was just the part where it's like the thing that I wanted more than anything was just to regularly get inside of a room with a group of committed, smart design students. And it's actually staggering how easy it is to find that, you know? Like I've never, I've had so few dumb, unmotivated design students. For the most part, like everybody really wants to be there, you know? Like this is not, something to like slack off and do. And I think that that's sort of one of the, one of the magic qualities about like teaching and design school. It's like generally like almost everybody who's there is like incredibly motivated. And it's one of the few areas in your life where that's actually true. You know, like um, you go to the DMV and to actually have somebody help you who's motivated. It feels like uh, you just got kissed on the lips by God, you know, it, it's just not something that you necessarily come across in your day-to-day life. And to be able to go do that several times a week is great. I think another aspect is like, there's just no clients. Like you're really just helping these students develop their skills and there's no outside complexities. But the bureaucratic aspect, even though like my bureaucratic responsibilities were really low because I was adjunct, was just like me getting really fussy about stuff like, I would be like, why do I have to grade? It's like, if we do a critique every other class, it's like, why do I have to grade this? It's like, they know what I think about it. And ultimately like the, the real grade for this particular assignment is going to be whoever is looking at this portfolio after they graduate, trying to figure out whether or not they wanna work with this person, you know? So I was just kind of like, if you have a portfolio um, culture and a critique culture, and if your classrooms are really social and they have like a studio feeling instead of more of a classroom feeling, the more that sort of bureaucratic aspect of school begins to chafe. And what I decided was classrooms that had that kind of quality were the kinds of classrooms that got better results for my students. And they were the kinds of classrooms that I wanted to be in. And it was just like, this is, this is just kind of like a little story about how maybe irresponsible and jaded I got towards the end. I walked into a classroom and there was like, I feel like the, the feeling that every teacher has is like, this class is 20% too big. It's like every time you walk into a classroom for the first time, 
uh, you look around and it's like, I don't know anybody here. I'm sure they're all really wonderful people. And it's like, I wish that there were 20% fewer people here. You know, it's just kind of like this class would be better if instead of 16 or 20 people, there was like 12 or 14, you know, something like that. So I was just like, if you never come back, I'll give you a B. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody believed me. Nobody believed me. I was completely happy to do it because I just didn't really believe in the grades because of an observation I made earlier about portfolios and critique and all of that. It's like the idea of grading something is kind of dumb because like you just want everybody to be able to have B-level work anyway and you need to keep at it until I get there. Um, Anyway, like that's a really risky proposition to believe, right? Like think about this as like a student with an adjunct professor that tells you never to come back and you'll get a B. It's like, well, if that's not true, that's a huge downside, you know? So I restructured the class and I kind of made it more towards like, I guess what's called a mastery model. Whereas like on day two, it was like, okay, we have five assignments in this class. Here's the proposed schedule for those five assignments. But you go at whatever speed you want to do. You have to do those five assignments in order. You have to like get at least a B on assignment number one before you can do assignment number two, right? So if you can do assignment number one in two days and show it to me on Thursday when we get back together, cool. Like check mark, done. And I'll tell you like whether or not you're clear to go to assignment number two. This is like a typography course. It's like type number two. You know, there's like a big delta and the skills of the students inside of that class, where some of them just like have a natural acuity for organizing information and having like a typographic sophistication and other students needed more assistance, which Mm -hmm. is great. You know, it's like, let's focus our energy on the places where you get stuck, those points of stuckness, because I guarantee that by spending more time and attention in those places of stuckness, that's how we sort of like get them unstuck. And I don't want you to be on somebody else's schedule to learn these things. And if you already know these things, let's get to something maybe a little bit more interesting and self-initiated. So it was just kind of like, if you can breeze through those five assignments, it's like I've got two optional assignments that we can do that would be really incredible portfolio pieces instead of more exercise oriented, right? So like, let's jump into that or maybe step into a dialogue where we can actually ask about what are your interests? What do you want to work on? Like, let's dream up something that we can work on together with the amount of time that we have left. or you know, if we only have a week, week and a half left until the semester's over, bring in other projects that you're not, that you're done with for other classes, but maybe not quite happy with. And let's talk about those and bring them up to speed. That doesn't really fit a bureaucratic classroom situation, but it perfectly matches the way that you would operate inside of a studio. And I think the tension between the way that I wanted things to go versus the way that things needed to go for this larger umbrella that that classroom was situated in, became the reason that I needed to step away from it. And it's like, there's other ways to be in a room with, you know, five or 10 motivated design students. Um, maybe not right now because of COVID, but you know, eventually there's other ways to do that, that I think are more economical for the student and more economical in terms of time. What might those be? Um, well, I think that one of the things that's been particularly interesting especially uh, right before COVID and during COVID is I think that there's like a much more robust workshop culture happening in the design um, and creativity spaces right now. So um, obviously self-education is a big part of that. So the video platforms where you pay a subscription fee and you can like pick up video courses that teach you how to do 
programming or um, hand lettering, those kinds of things. So self-initiated stuff I think is really interesting. Um, I think also just like, I don't know, we used to make fun of webinars before COVID and now like our whole life is webinars, mm -hmm. right? So like, I'm gonna try my first one uh, next week. So like the writer George Saunders has a new book coming out and it's kind of based on uh, the course that he teaches at Syracuse about the Russian short stories. So he took that course, turned it into a book. And now he's doing this little program where if you pre-order the book, it's like, cool, go read this Chekhov short story. And then there's gonna be a Zoom class where he does like a one hour lecture on it, right? So like, that's another viable option. I'm also in New York City where there's a bunch of design schools. So like once you can be in a room with other people that you don't know in a safe way, it's like there's nothing preventing you from just sort of renting a room and saying like, cool, we're gonna meet here once a week for four weeks, you know, and do like a little workshop course over the, over the course of those weeks. And just kind of like looking at ways to have more specific, um, topics for these particular courses and maybe try to um, tailor them more towards individual needs um, or have them be less generalized than like basic type or things mm -hmm. like that. You know, it's just kind of like a common understanding. And I think if you can do that regularly enough and have the price point be affordable enough for people to be able to do it, I think that becomes a much more interesting way to um, have the kind of relationship that I want outside of an academic context. And when I say this, I just, I want to be clear. It's like, this is not an idea that necessarily works in, um, I don't know, certain areas of the U.S. or certain parts of the world. Um, it's also one of those ideas where it's, it's not really even something that would replace um, a design school. And that's not necessarily the the intention of it. It's like, I just bring this up because I think about how, how can I get into a place where like I can do a little bit more like short-term mentorship for younger designers and how can I get back into that feedback loop that I mentioned earlier when I, when I was like beginning to write, to step back into mm -hmm. those conversations with people, to sort of see what the patterns are and understand the needs and then like actually make resources, whether that's writing or classes to, to meet people where they are and try to help them in whatever way that I can. Yeah, one thing you mentioned earlier was kind of like um, the flywheel effect of kind of all these different things you were doing and, um, you know, talking about giving giving talks and, and writing and teaching and doing work and kind of how that all influenced each other. And um, it's almost like you're talking about this now is that you feel like there's a missing piece in what you're doing, mm. maybe. Yeah, I think it's happening in a different context now. So one of the more interesting bits is over the last couple of years, I've been working with a lot of startups and most startup founders are, are younger, you know, mm -hmm. um, because they're the people who have the energy to go hot and hard with their work stuff, you know? Yeah. So most of those are, not all of them, but like many of them are between like 23 and 30. And one of the interesting things is there is a bit of a flywheel effect there where you start to do some pattern recognition between the client needs and you can communicate to them. It's not even necessarily about making design work that solves those needs, but just more like giving them a little bit of context and sort of saying like, this is a really common problem. And there's a couple of different strategies about how we can approach this, what sounds like the right way for you to do that. Mm -hmm. um, 
and because a lot of that work comes through referrals as well, I think that there's that sort of activity uh, and that flow of information is also happening behind the scenes as well, you know, because a lot of those founders are plugged into a community where they talk to one another um, because they are facing um, some real problems uh, and real difficult situations that they're trying to work through. And um, yeah, it's, it's just like a different context. I think the difference though, is that the stakes are so much higher. You know, it's like there you've got a couple million dollars in the bank, the expectation of turning it into something that's worth billions. And that's a very steep hill to climb, you know, mm-hmm. that's a really steep hill. And that's much different than uh, getting together with a batch of students and talking about how to make their work better over the course of six months, you know. I like where you're going with this, Frank, the idea of um, trying to provide a, a different perspective or a, a different avenue for education, um, maybe not to replace, but to help support or augment um, education, I think is, is very important. You know, I, Chad and I were, were both connected to PLU, Pacific Lutheran University mm-hmm. uh, here in Tacoma, Washington. And, you know, there's, we're close to one of the, the big tech areas in, of Seattle but yeah. sometimes getting from here to there, which is 30 miles or two hours, depending on traffic, um, you know, feels like it is the Atlantic Ocean yeah. to get yeah. there. But having to use technology and, and the, the, the opportunity to use uh, recorded, pre-recorded books, and, you know, having these sorts of interactions or, or workshops that they can attend, that they don't have to fly somewhere to, to, to get that same sort of one hour workshop from a, uh, you know, the pre-conference or, or what have you. I think all of those components are going to be the thing that helps support uh, a, a design education in the future, that there still may be a school but there will be all these other supportive elements that will help enrich um, a, in a much more robust design education. Yeah, there's, there's sort of two aspects there as well. What's really interesting to me is especially um, understanding a lot of the complaints that technology has about how design schools prepare young designers for the marketplace. Um, they're always complaining that like the design schools aren't doing a very good job. Um, however, the design schools are not there to service those technology companies. And the thing that I always try to push back a little bit whenever you know, I'm sitting at a table with people who work at technology companies complaining about design schools is like, why aren't you teaching? You know, it's like your income is so much higher than probably anybody else who's doing adjunct instructorship at a university. It's like you have this cushy job at Microsoft or you know Airbnb or any number of one of these like big tech companies. And it's like, well, there are night classes. Like if you wanna actually do something about this or if the company that you want to, that you work for wants to do something about this and to actually seed some of their values and the knowledge that they wanna to transmit to these students to make them better employees. It's like, why don't you just plug into the system in places where there are already openings mm. and make real contributions and get into a conversation with those students. There's enough flexibility in how you choose to teach a course as an adjunct professor to carry along all of the things that you think that these students need to know. You know? And I know that a lot of these people are interested in mentorship, right? So it's like that 
conversation that you have with these people doesn't necessarily need to end when the course ends either. So if you don't get to discuss everything that you think is relevant or essential, it's like you can sort of prolong the conversation with these people. And I bet that the students would be very interested in that because it would feel like kind of a foreign source of information and maybe even like valued over the information that they're getting from their instructors because yeah. this is somebody who's maybe already on the road that they want to be on in a few years. So yeah. I think that that's worth saying. It's like there are all of these criticisms and there are um, real hurdles to get over about how to reshape the bureaucracies of universities and schools about how we train people for industries that are changing really quickly. But we can also look at those industries and just say, where are you? Like, why aren't you here? And I think that that's a really valid criticism. Well, Frank, we're, we're coming up on the, the end here and we usually like to ask a few questions about, um, you know, some recommendations for our listeners. Um, I was curious about if there was something you'd read or listened to lately that you felt make it, made a big impact that hasn't gotten enough play yet. Yeah, I have two book recommendations. All right. Yeah. Books. So I think uh, like design work, it's, it's like very cerebral and visual. And it's super important, I think, for me to sort of balance out my like sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And the primary way that I've been doing that over the last couple of years is just by cooking. Mm. And you smell things, you get to feel things. There's sounds if you, if you want those sounds to be there, but it's just kind of like the inverse of being a designer, sitting at your computer, looking at things really closely and wearing headphones and listening to music. Mm -hmm. So um, we're like in COVID times right now, right? So I think that there's probably a lot people, people who are, who are cooking much more often than they might've been doing in the past or facing like the challenge of that. So one particular book that I like it is called An Everlasting Meal by Tamar Adler. So uh, she used to work at Chez Panisse. She also used to be an editor at Vanity Fair. And this book has recipes in it, but it's not a cookbook. Uh, the reason that I recommend it is because it's written incredibly beautifully. Like she has like such an interesting literary voice. And as far as subject matter goes, um, the subtitle is Cooking with Economy and Grace. So the idea is like, how do you sort of operate in the kitchen and have one ingredient roll from one meal to the next? It's really interesting. So it's just kind of like, I don't know, it's the kind of thing like, how do you make stock after you roast a chicken? Or um, I buy a head of broccoli and it's like, here's something to do with the florets. And then like, what do I do with the rest of this? And how can this be useful? And uh, for me, as somebody who like appreciates beautiful writing, but also as a designer, likes the idea of like economy and like things naturally flowing into other things and just getting the most out of stuff, it feels like a very quote unquote designed process. Um, and it's just kind of like celebrating that particular perspective. So that's my first recommendation. Uh, we also talked a little bit about this idea of um, like defusing away from the almost like yourself you know mm -hmm. it's like not really necessarily like closely fusing with your role as a designer and i think one of the a, another book that i would recommend it's called a liberated mind by stephen hayes um he is this is not a pop psychology book it's like 
a very readable, scientifically backed uh, psychological perspective. So anybody who um, has learned anything about therapy or been in therapy over the last several years probably knows about cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, this is like a relative to that, but it is a different um, interpretation about mental wellness where it is about like accepting things as they are being committed to values um, and like your general trajectory in life. And it incorporates a lot of things related to uh, defusing from thoughts, mindfulness, those kinds of practices. So if you find yourself like interested or flirting with things like uh, meditation um, or general overall mental wellness, I think that this is like a really interesting book about how to have an interesting and uh, robust scientifically backed um, perspective about your life and your thought process. Sounds wonderful. Yes. Uh, sounds like something I need to read. <laughs> yeah, I, I recommend it really, really highly. Um, yeah. even, even if you're not um, like suffering because mm -hmm. of COVID, even if you find yourself kind of like keeping your poise and like, you know, having like firm footing, I think it's really interesting, particularly in how some of these skills overlap with a design process, you mm -hmm. know? So there's a little bit in there about relational frame theory, which is about how we link things to other things in our mind based on experience. And that's pretty much branding. That's like the bedrock of what branding is built on top of. So this is kind of like getting under the covers of that a little bit and developing like a real um, psychological stance about having thoughts and an interior life that I think is useful for everybody, but maybe particularly interesting for people interested in mindfulness or uh, especially designers because of that branding link that I just mentioned. Nice. Well, well thank you for those. My uh, request for a recommendation is actually related to our times right now. Uh, as we're recording, COVID is still kind of um, causing a bit of havoc in, in our uh, everyday life here. So I'm wondering if you have any recommendations of things that you've done or that uh, you would recommend of how to cope with it or what is it that you're doing that um, you, you find yourself staying the creativity to, to keep it going, to, uh, to be in that mindset? Mm, keep the creativity going? Yeah. Uh, don't worry about it. Yeah. Seriously. Like this is, there's, there's other priorities. Like if you have the energy to like show up and do a personal project and things like that, more power to you. But like this is not, go on a walk, cook something. Like that's enough, I yeah. think right now. There's enough things swirling around that we don't need to like saddle ourselves with extra expectations if we feel like we can't meet them. It's funny you mentioned cooking because as this has, has uh, continued, I've gotten more and more into baking and uh, uh, trying out new things. And, and so your recommendation for that, the everlasting meal is definitely something that I'm gonna have to pick up and yeah, give a Yeah, try. definitely. I highly, highly recommend it. And I think one of, the, one of the comments that I made earlier was like I said, the simple things are worth doing well because they happen every day. And I think that one of the, there's a lot of bad stuff that has come out of the COVID situation and let's not forget about those. But I think one of the, un 
anticipated benefits is that I think a lot of people have a much clearer understanding about what's important. And they're sort of getting back in the routine of those really simple things of, you know, cooking a little bit or baking, um, of going on regular walks where it's like all of the, all of the extra things that are on top of that, that maybe didn't seem like extras and felt like essential, feel much less essential these days. And um, because we sort of understand that it is a pocket of time that we're living in, maybe we can sort of come to these essential things with like a little bit more joy and like a little bit more commitment once that pocket of time is, is over. What a great way to end it. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us on this design school today. I feel like we could sit and talk for hours, but um, yeah, thanks for joining. We have. If we were all in New York and if it wasn't COVID, we would uh, definitely be uh, splitting another beer somewhere. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. It was fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Thank you. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at TIDS Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.